0: I'm gonna try to tame your little red love.
1: This is hell. And I am told that people who do listen to the live stream, and you should listen to the live stream Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 10 a.m., as well as our Patreon podcast on Thursday, I'm being told that people who listen to the live stream they got to hear all of the discussion we were just having between myself the producers and the guests over the live stream and so now you get to understand what happens here behind the scenes at this is hell so i strongly suggest that everybody listen to the live stream live from the united states where the law is far too often the crime this is hell and that's something i learned as a kid At a very young age The law in the form of the police Is far too often On the take With a long history of being cruel Brutal and racist enforcers Of white supremacy and privilege Yes I'm definitely white, so I have been unfairly, ben- I've unfairly benefited from unequal policing, especially when I was a kid in Detroit. I was born on the far east side, as close to the tony suburban gross points as you can get, but my family lived across the black and white border of 8 Mile Road that was both black and white when it came to race, and a clear dividing line separating the two communities, the understanding of what that meant when crossing over to the other side of that racial binary. That suburb where I was raised on the white side of 8 Mile, East Detroit. That suburb no longer exists. See, the white people who lived there were so damn racist, they decided to distance themselves from Detroit, despite only being across the street from the Motor City, despite the fact that Detroit offered them the employment that kept them in their homes in the white suburbs. That's when the racist residents of East Detroit changed the name of the burb to one word, East Point, with an E at the end, like the gross points, hoping that would lead to potential businesses and homebuyers to not associate their suburb with Detroit again, despite being directly across the street from Detroit and depending upon Detroit for their livelihoods. The racism Detroit faced from racist cops is not unique to what other black communities and urban areas across the United States faced in the past and still faces today. What made Detroit different though, was the response by the black community to the uprising against racialized police violence in 1967, which like all uprisings against racialized police violence in the history of the United States was met with a government ordered brutal and deadly crackdown by police. Detroit's black community responded with unprecedented black power to the point that the city became an incubator for black power movements around the country as black liberation activists swarmed to the city to see what was happening. And as always, the government police and their police cracked down again. But this time, according to our guest, with assistance from federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies, as well as local police, And our guest today has found evidence that suggests the crackdown was fueled by overflowing the streets of Detroit with illegal narcotics that intentionally, intentionally tore the black community apart. Our guest today is Christopher Hood, author of the award-winning script and film Killing Detroit, The City That Refused to Die, that is now in book form in 2023 killing detroit was selected for the red river film competition and was an official selection in the la sun film festival the previous year it was selected as best script in the windsor international film festival a nominee at the toronto film and script awards and a semi-finalist in the london international screenwriting competition find out more about killing detroit at killingdetroit.com follow killing detroit on facebook at facebook.com killingdetroit Christopher's second book to be released in the spring of this year, 2024, is The Corporate Clan, which tells the story of white privilege, corporate arrogance, greed, and racism. So, probably a book that's going to be featured here on This Is Hell. According to his website, The True Story exposes how the tables were turned on greed and racism in a most unusual and unexpected way. The Corporate Clan is a powerful warning call to every CEO. Across America Christopher is a member of the International Association Of Press Photographers and reports to Six international news organizations Producing this show is Becca Ridenour Becca, how's your week going? It's
2: it's cold
1: It is really cold (laughs) When I got in here today I couldn't believe the thermostat said 49 I was (laughs) shocked And coming from my house where It it hit 60 for the first time in 36 Hours I think, roughly
2: cold.
1: Yes, very cold. <laughs> very cold. Uh, shadowing Becca is Chris Coolfin. Chris, how have you been? Last time I saw you was before Chicago entered a frozen apocalypse prior to MLK Day. So what have you been up to? What did you do for MLK Junior Day? When you guys are protesting, you are involved in a lot of protests. Uh, when you are protesting, do you not go out in weather like this?
0: No, we've been out weather like You're this. You're kidding. And I've been out weather like this when it was just five people, which is a little embarrassing. Sometimes. Wow. But uh, this was a great weekend, though. I was in Washington, D.C. for March for Gaza, watching Cornel West, Jules, Jill Stein speak. And uh, that was a very moving march. 400,000 people in D.C. Wow. demanding ceasefire in Gaza. And also the heavy thing is this. Is what struck me is they had people on stage uh, talk about, and they had pictures of people living in the like Palestinians living in the diaspora in the U.S. And what they did, and, and they have family members in Gaza, of course, and, and and they lost a lot of family members while living in the U.S. And the, the what I find was what I found interesting was this is what came to my head is we all have heavy moments. Like for example, my mom died ten years ago. That was heavy. My grandmother died thirty years ago. That was heavy when I was much younger, but how many of us have 10 people close family members die at once 10 or 12 or I six know. and that's something to think about and so at the same point what's going on in Gaza is really heavy i mean like 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 nothing that any of us went through and i think it's time to raise awareness on ceasefire irrelevant of where we're on the political spectrum right is right wrong is wrong genocide is wrong so.
1: yeah you know the uh it's really intense because when you think about it like an individual like you were just saying an individual dying in your family That's really, really traumatic. Losing your entire family? I can't even imagine what that would be like. And I think that people should try to imagine what that would be like so they can understand why it's so important that. We all understand war just sucks But stay with me for a moment, Chris Because there is a reason I asked what you have been up to On Saturday, January 6th On what used to be the epiphany But is now the anniversary of the U.S. Capitol attack And you don't hear anyone at Fox News Complaining about the true meaning of January 6th My unwife had to go back to Michigan To take care of her mom so she left our place, which is right up here by the studio in West Ridge or Little India, uh, close to the Western and Devon intersection. On a good day, you can get from here in a car, you can get from here to the tollway and then into Gary, Indiana. If you're lucky, around, you know, like around an hour, less than an hour maybe, but it's generally, you know, hour, hour to 15 minutes, maybe a little bit more. But on Saturday, January 6th, my unspouse was driving to Michigan And, Chris, you will understand that this is ridiculous. It took her three and a half hours to get to Gary. So, Chris, were you one of the supporters of the people of Gaza who was stopping traffic on Lakeshore Jive on January 6th?
0: Uh... Yeah, I, 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 I was one of those, one of those horrible <laughs> evil people that, that stops try. I've done that multiple times. It's kind of fun, but you get the, you get it's interesting. You get the part of the, of the people in the, in the cars who are angry. Some are like clapping, supporting us, mm-hmm. which is cool. Others are like, come on, man, come on. I need, I need to get somewhere. I need to, you know, like. Like, like, you get people screaming at you, too. So you get love, but you also get a sh- like load of hate, too. So you get a little bit of both. You <laughs> Thank know, you so. for
1: censoring yourself there, by the way. Oh, sorry That's <laughs> no, okay. You censored yourself. That was perfect. Oh, okay. So, uh, but yeah, as she was approaching Lakeshore Drive, or like uh, Millennium Park, uh, she said she heard a, hor- a whole bunch of horns honking, and she was like, why would people be honking at it? A- traffic accident she could not figure out what was going on she turns on news radio finds out what the issue is so she starts honking her horn and my unwife wanted to say thank you to you Chris for being out there and I'm pretty sure she was not being sarcastic
3: Much so. love, much
1: love. Thank you. <laughs> so, the Heat in My Building is working. You can hear the registers hissing steam. If you put your hand on them and it it's so hot, your hand will definitely burn. The cats are cuddling up to the heaters, which is a sure sign. Our heaters are working, but our storm windows are rusted open and attempting to unjam them in sub zero weather is out of the question. We live on the third floor and our roof is not insulated, which does not help a former tenant on the second floor after selling their place, took out most of the heaters and sold them for scrap, which he could legally do because he was a terrible person who happened to be a real estate agent and had it written into the home sale contract that he could basically strip anything and sell it outside of the copper wiring in the walls. So the current second floor resident does not have as much heat as his unit should be getting. The first floor is abandoned as a hoarder was forced to move out and they have refused to sell the place. So we have no idea if her heat is even on. We have no access to her place whatsoever however the last time we were in there all her heaters were turned off which means the second floor resident is depending on nothing but radiant heat from our unit above them and whatever ambient heat there is coming from the basement furnace and through the abandoned first floor apartment below them and then up to their apartment our thermostat has not displayed an indoor temperature of over 56 for three days except for a couple hours yesterday evening And right before i left my home this morning it's cold in my place but it's tolerable and it's a reminder like i said yesterday of the cruelty of capitalism its punitive poverty inhumanity of homelessness its disservice toward the unhoused the vulnerable and i can see the people living in tents in the park outside my back window capitalism is failing us The neoliberal version is just as much a failure as other past varieties of laissez-faire U.S. capitalism. Globalization is not working, although there was a moment when it looked like it might be, but it was only a moment, and that moment was likely exaggerated. Whether it existed or not no longer matters because that moment has apparently passed us. As Oxfam reported on Sunday, the world's five richest men have more than doubled their fortunes from 500, or sorry, $405 billion to $869 billion since 2020, at a rate of earning or stealing $14 million per hour, while nearly 5 billion people have been made, made poorer, according to the new Oxfam report on inequality and in global corporate power. If current trends continue, Oxfam says the world will have its last trillionaire, or sorry, last, hopefully last. The world will have its first trillionaire within a decade, but poverty won't be eradicated for another 229 years. I'm sorry, Oxfam, but eradicating poverty in 229 years at the rate we are going sounds pretty damn optimistic to me. Do you want to know why you are seeing more and more unhoused people? Not that the establishment press will tell you, but it's because capitalism is failing the vast majority and helping the smallest of minorities who benefit from exploiting the rest of us, who profit from impoverishing the public and forcing them to live outside and below zero temperatures and not giving a damn. Last night, a local TV news story on being homeless in sub-zero temperatures mentioned the difficulty. that. You know homeless groups have of serving the unhoused in such weather but at no point was there a single word on why given the life-threatening conditions outdoors why were people still sleeping outside especially when chicago has hundreds probably thousands of abandoned buildings that are still through tax and po- property uh, tax loopholes making handsome profits for their owners Why are we not using eminent domain to get people into warm buildings? Look, there is no migrant crisis. There is a U.S. sanctions crisis in Central and South America. Europe's migrant crisis is a crisis of wars they are engaged in with the United States in the Middle East and surrounding area and there's no homelessness crisis or crisis of the unhoused. There's a crisis we are all suffering from, a crisis of growing inequality and the constant reinforcement and expansion of a process that puts profits over people, rewards greed and punishes the public whenever it dares to stand up to the 1% and their corporations. There is no migrant, immigrant or homelessness crisis. The real crises are economic sanctions, wars and increasing poverty and inequality under the market. Don't blame those who are inhumanely suffering from the crises of capitalism for its cruelty. But more important than me being cold in my house and how it keeps reminding me of how much worse so many have it than I do, Becca, what is this week's question from health for our listening audience?
2: All right, this week's question from Hell, and we are rolling over from last week, and we are thinking Adam A. on our Facebook group page. And the Welcome to Hell question is, uh, what flashy cable news name Will you give our for ne- next Forever war
1: What flashy new cable news name Will you give our new flashy Forever war The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell As always wins their choice of whatever This is hell swag they want You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com And clicking on support You can still leave your answer at our Facebook page Facebook.com slash thisishellradio Apparently when I tried to share it To our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page Facebook blocked that share So it is now posted at our Facebook group page Welcome to the Hell Hole And you can leave your answer there Or you can tweet it at us via X at Radio, Or you can post it in our Discord community Or you can leave your answer at our Patreon page If you are a subscriber at Patreon.com slash ThisIsHell Patreon patrons, in fact, get first crack at the question from hell As we share it during the weekly exclusive Patreon podcast Which this week goes live at its regular time on Thursday morning At 10 a.m. Central Standard Time here in Chicago Coming up, the killing of Detroit. We will tell you what is happening on this week's bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash this is hell. And we'll share with you who our upcoming guests on next week's shows are. Assuming we confirm a guest within the next half hour to forty five minutes, because we're waiting to hear back from a few different people. Manufacturing descent since nineteen ninety six. This is Is hell And there's really not much more of a dissenting opinion in the United States Than the major urban crises of the 1960s and 1970s In black communities across the United States Being intentional projects by some members of the local city police force Local city government with assistance of individuals Within federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies To subvert the growth of black power but according to today's first guest of 2024, that's exactly what happened. Not first guest, or actually our third guest of 2024, what happened in Detroit. And he says well, he has the evidence to prove it. And by my estimation, it appears he does. Joining us today is Christopher Hood, author of the award-winning script and film Killing Detroit, The City That Refused to Die. You can find out more about Killing Detroit at KillingDetroit.com. Welcome to This is Hell, Christopher. Welcome to This Is Hell. Christopher, you want to try it again? Do you have his audio unmuted?
3: He's yes, here. Chuck, here I am.
1: All right, fantastic, Christopher. It's great to hear your voice. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, uh, first of all, I want to apologize for having to reschedule you twice, and uh, thank you for being so flexible with your schedule. I truly appreciate it.
3: Well, I want to thank you for that outstanding introduction. It was extremely informative and historical. You uh, know a lot about Detroit, I can tell that right off by what you said at the beginning of the narrative.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, when I was growing up in East Detroit, right across the street, right across eight miles from Detroit, there were 48,000 people living in an area of two miles by two miles, and only six were African-American. There was so much racism in that city, I could, or that suburb. I could not wait to get out, and I loved sneaking into the city, getting on the SEMTA bus, going downtown, jumping on the DOT when I get to 8 Mile Road, and then just going downtown without my parents knowing. It was, it was, was just so much racism around me, I couldn't deal with it. So, one of the things that you point out in your article, and it's important for everybody to know this, you know, a lot of people don't know that Flint, Michigan, was one of the wealthiest towns in the United States by around 1980, as recently as 1980. In 1920, Mm -hmm. Detroit was the richest and fourth largest city in the United States behind New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, positions they would hold until the 1950s. Within the next two decades, the city would uh, see severe population loss and economic uh, devastation. Now it's the 21st largest, and every economic rebound the city has experienced since is very difficult. Debatable. I mean, how many times have you heard that Detroit's going to turn it around any moment now? Your book argues that this decline was due to police and government corruption in an attempt to defend white supremacy in the city And as a reaction to Detroit's thriving black power movement that was attracting black activists to the city from all around the country Relative to the collapse of U.S. auto manufacturing The oil crisis hyperinflation, stagflation, all the economic factors that are often labeled in the popular discourse as being the reasons why Detroit declined relative to those economic factors. By your estimation, Christopher, how significant was police and government corruption in Detroit's decline?
3: Extremely, Chuck. So what my book does, it takes a different look at history. So most of the time when history is written, it's not written by those who actually experienced it. It's written from, you know, uh, overview um, what people think happened in Detroit. So in the book, we compare Greenwood, Oklahoma, to Detroit. And it's a very good comparison because uh, a lot of your listeners may be familiar with Greenwood, Black Wall Street. Detroit had many similar traits. Remember that this was the automotive capital of not just the U.S., automotive capital of the world. Jobs were plentiful. Uh, Careers were plentiful in the automotive factories where you could actually graduate just from high school, walk in the next day and get a job in a factory. Not a lot of qualifications. Obviously, it was hard labor on the assembly lines, but that labor resulted in many people buying homes. Detroit was a city of homes. When the riot occurred, and people think that this was just a plain old riot but there were things that fueled that riot before it happened and the things that fueled it were police brutality uh killing people with throw down guns uh, just basic disrespect for the black community fueled this and it came to a boiling point on a night when a party was held for a veteran in an after hours club let me qualify that after hours club comment because those were common throughout the city uh people looked the other way they were just small clubs in basements of homes. And they decided to crack down in a big way. And that was the fuse that lit the 1967 riot, where 1,200 buildings were burned and 43 people were killed in five days. It was all, the fuse was all lit by the Detroit Police Department. And it continued for five days. And after that, the city was basically destroyed. The thriving black community which the epicenter was 12th Street, was completely destroyed. Uh, It never was rebuilt. It was insultingly named after Rosa Parks, as it is today. But it's a a street that burned down, similar to what they did in Oklahoma City and Greenwood. Except instead of dropping turpentine bombs on the city, they dropped drugs on the city in the aftermath of the riot, creating thousands and thousands of drug addicts and thousands of people who could not work, and thousands of targets for the law enforcement agencies to arrest people for using drugs, having drugs. It created uh, an avalanche of uh, criminal activity in Detroit, and this is the history that we're exposing and Killing Detroit.
1: But this understanding, you need to have a different kind of historical context. For instance, you were talking about Greenwood, about uh, Black Wall Street being destroyed. Uh, At the same time, around that time, there was, I mean, this is not just happening. Obviously, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, this is happening everywhere. We've talked about on the show that not only was it happening there, it also happened in Elaine, Arkansas and other towns. As soon as wealth was going to a black community, that wealth was targeted and destroyed by white supremacists. So You have to have that understanding of history, but you also have to have the understanding of history that in the 1960s, the quote unquote race riots weren't race riots, they were anti-police Violence uprisings without understanding that this, that Tulsa was about stealing wealth from black people, and without understanding that Detroit was trying, that what was happening in Detroit, as well as happening around the United States, were anti police violence uprisings. How can we have an understanding that what happened to Detroit is what happened to Detroit? Without having that context, how can we understand what happened to Detroit?
3: And consider this also, the fact that in just four years, the Detroit Police Department killed 136 civilians. Somehow we think that that's gone and passed. It hasn't. There is a culture in Detroit of police mistrust, and it's a result of the 60s and 70s the parents taught their kids, don't trust the cops, they're corrupt. This doesn't just end because the killings stop. The confidence that people have in the police department of Detroit, it's improved, but it's been fifty years now. This damage doesn't go away. And let's talk about the wealth that was destroyed. Trillions and trillions of dollars of real estate wealth because home ownership was common in Detroit. It was all wiped out complete completely wiped out. And just think if that hadn't have happened, where the black community would be today. A lot of wealth is based on real estate ownership, and that's been flushed down the toilet. If you drive through Detroit today, you will see hundreds, and they've torn down 20,000 homes or so. You'll still see uh, the skeleton of what the Detroit city of Detroit used to be. You're going to see abandoned homes. You're going to see porches falling off, roofs with holes in them, houses burned down. The place looks like Beirut once you leave downtown and midtown. The city is still in bad shape, and it's all the result of the Detroit Police Department, the CIA, and also just bad policies that never protected property owners. You can go to the probate court, it's all corrupt, and it all destroyed the city.
1: So you were just mentioning how, where the quote-unquote blind pig was, the supposedly illegal nightclub was, that started, uh, was the location where the uh, situation started that led to the uprisings in 1967. You said that that Street 12th, uh, Fort and 12th, I believe is the intersection, uh, is now called Rosa Parks. Why do you find that insulting?
3: I find that quite insulting, and... um the idea that Rosa Parks, a freedom fighter, would be represented by a street that was burned down, as I mentioned, 1,200 buildings around the city, to put your name on that is, is an insult. If, if in anything, she should be honored and not named after a street uh, where there, quite a bit of violence took place, and it basically has evaporated. There is no 12th Street anymore. So right now, there's an historical marker there at 12th and Claremont where the blind pig was, and that's about it. It just says, here's where the riot started, and it's a historical placard. And there's a church there, I believe, and people have picnics in the backyard and things like that. But no real historical perspective of how and why this started. Based on how and why this started, Rosa Parks' name should never be on anything related to the 67 riot. Never.
1: In the introduction to your book, the screenplay to the movie includes an interview with you where you say the whole idea that the city collapsed based on a bunch of lazy, shiftless people in Detroit who let their property go to hell is historically inaccurate, though that was the story every one of my racist neighbors was telling me. The idea that people had no pride in ownership or work ethic is shameful. Historically, we have been the target of numerous illicit schemes and blamed for the result. This is the pattern of one-sided American history. That is the kind of historical record I'm out to not only disprove, but I'm out to crush. If that is the story of what happened to Detroit. And as someone who was raised in East Detroit, I can confirm that is the story. What is the purpose of that false narrative, as you call it, and from where does that false narrative originate?
3: It originates from white supremacy, obviously, and that we built the automotive industry, just like we built uh, plenty of things in America. So you're talking about strong backs, strong bodies, strong minds, determined people in Detroit who came up from the South, and they came up to work, to work in the factories. And they built the American automobile industry. That does not sound lazy to me. That sounds like some people who were determined to find a better way of life uh, from the South. So this narrative that you know everything black people do is based on how lazy they are and they didn't take care of their property, that's just not true. Once drugs entered Detroit, and I'm going to say it only took, after the riot, at the most, about six months for this influx to happen at that point the city was inundated with drugs drugs could be found on any corner Uh, young men who uh, found an opportunity in selling drugs became street-level retail drug dealers however we know where those drugs came from we know how they got there and how rapidly they arrived that is what actually took place that is the untold story so nobody wants to hear this because it's so easy to say oh they were just lazy I lived in Detroit during those years and the city was beautiful and all of a sudden it collapsed uh, just like uh, it was unbelievable what happened. And you had police officers guarding the drug dealers who were dealing drugs on the street. And I can give you just a little quick story here. When I first saw this happening uh, where police were guarding drug dealers, I actually stopped my car, got out. And you can read this in the book. And I confronted the officer. Don't you see those drugs being sold? over there basically he told me to move on and mind my own business so now the cops become the drug dealers the drug protectors they are accommodating this destruction of our community and it's happening with our taxpayer dollars
1: as you were just mentioning black workers greatly contributed to what was called you know the so-called arsenal of democracy right the, all of the material yep. that Detroit created, uh, all of the tanks that it created, all of the planes that it created for World War II to supposedly save the United States and the world from fascism. Again, as you were saying, that doesn't sound like a whole bunch of lazy, shiftless workers. The story you tell, again, is not the story told. There is this false narrative. So within black communities, either here in Chicago, Detroit, wherever around the United States. How well do you think it is understood that we are told a false narrative about the urban crises in both cities and around the United States during the 60s and 70s? Do you think that there is an understanding of 1960s and 1970s history within black communities that is not held within white communities?
3: No, not not at all. I think that we've uh, pretty much, the history's been covered up. So you're in Chicago. Chicago was the Uh, host of an organization called the black people's topographical research center and they had centers all over the country to inform the black community about the very things we're talking about right now Uh, our true history our true history of invention and achievement in this country those centers were attacked and shut down uh, and that is well documented in my book and murders took place in order to shut these centers down because they were educational centers, they only dealt in research and facts and the the, the correct history, not just the history of slavery. Uh, I've made a point in my book that these events are worthy of reparations for the black people of Detroit who lost their friends and neighbors, their brothers and sisters and mothers through government-sponsored drugs. They do something for that, because that was a planned attack. And what I'm saying in the book is nothing new. I've just put the puzzle pieces together. The government's already admitted to much of this. The drug smugglers with the airplanes and the boats, they've admitted to protection from the CIA to get drugs into America. So this is nothing new, but it needs to be put out there where people can become educated as to the truth of the matter. You know, every single uh, holiday, King's birthday, we talk about the I had a dream speech. What we don't talk about is J. Edgar Hoover and what he tried to do to Martin Luther King. Hoover tried to get King to commit suicide, and that can be documented in the book also. You can read that in the research links as well. That's what we need to be talking about. The, The evil that this government has done against black people is what we need to concentrate on. We've heard the I Have a Dream speech a thousand times. Enough already. We need to find out the background story.
1: And the FBI had the audacity of actually releasing a statement on Martin Luther King Jr. today talking about how much she was a hero to the United States, which... which... Pretty shocking to me. So, uh, your book is banned in Florida, and you are quoted in the introduction. Oh, well, before I even mention that, I just wanted to say that you quote somebody in the book about this uh, topographic uh, research center, Black People's Topographic Research Center that was here in Chicago. Uh, You quote somebody saying, we call it concepts of the future for black people. We help our people find out who they are, which is just fascinating, and that, like, First hand eyewitness uh, View of history as it Took place is just fascinating to me But your book is banned in Florida you are quoted In the introduction saying those in High positions in the Florida government want To perform a surgical procedure on black History and extract the most embarrassing Parts for whites I view this Banning book idea as people trying to Turn back the hands of time On the one hand it doesn't worry Me at all I say that because Many people have attempted to turn back clocks And no one has succeeded my genuine concern is the new definition of stupid that some are embracing. People, or perhaps we are witnessing some new uh, political trends where the truth is the latest lie. And now you can see why we're having Christopher on the show. So why are you so confident that this movement to censor the historic truth, instead banning it from public schools as a lie, why are you so confident that movement to turn back the hands of the clock? will not succeed in preserving white supremacy's influence in the U.S. public education system.
3: You know, it's like this, Chuck. When somebody tells you not to do something, you you automatically question it. I mean, you tell your kids, you know, don't touch the stove. And they're thinking to themselves, well, why not? You know, and they may try it. They may not. But there's a tendency for human beings to look further into something that they're told not to. And this is a great example of it. This outrage that you're going to see in, in Florida over time and this protest, it, it, it's not, you, you can't turn back history. You can't hide history. You know, one of the things that I've always been against is the destroying of these Confederate statues, taking down of this history. And, I, and, and people are going to say, oh, man, that's, what you're saying is not right. But listen to it, listen to this. I am saying that same Confederate statue, if it had the truth on the plaque below it, that would be a benefit to history once you take it away it's gone forever So what's happening around the country it's gone forever we're not responsible for what these uh, so-called dignified Americans did uh... George Washington the truth about him is nothing but a lie you know we talk about found founding fathers I heard one of the presidential candidates mention the other day the founding fathers the founding fathers had slaves in their backyards both Washington uh and his wife both had slaves most of them had slaves so how are we supposed to respect that how are we supposed to even respect washington dc by name if it's named after a slaveholder so i think all of these attempts to ban history cause people to be more curious and the truth will never go away the truth is the truth you can't whitewash american history this country was based on slavery and it still believes in slavery and it still believes in waste racism and white supremacy period end of story
1: it would be a lot better if the christopher columbus statue downtown instead of them taking it down they just put a plaque on it that said christopher columbus enslaved the indigenous rode them like horses to the point of committing genocide and killing all of the people in the land that he you know landed upon that that would be a much better way of doing we have a column from uh, Mussolini <laughs> right by Soldier Field, maybe that should have a plaque talking about how that was uh, you know part of a fascist uprising in Europe. so on the political thinking behind the state of uh, florida 's banning your book, you add that when people define dumb ideas as intelligent, we are truly entering uncharted territory you don 't need to look very deep to find the core motivator, and all of this is simply racism and the preservation of. Artificial white supremacy. So is the false narrative about why Detroit suffered so much from a drug epidemic in the 60s and 70s that was devastating to community members, is that false narrative just as much a way in which white supremacy is reinforced, is still taught today, as what, government, what Florida's government is trying to do in banning accurate history books on America's past that embarrasses and makes some white people uncomfortable? Should we be challenging not only... The idea of taking these books out of schools, but that false narrative within the media as much as we are now challenging history books in our public schools. And are we? Do you see any movement towards challenging the narrative of lazy, shiftless black people being behind the decline of urban centers?
3: And uh, unfortunately, Chuck, I I would say no to that. And I would say the intensification of racism through, you know, obviously this presidential campaign and who's running uh, sort of intensifies things. So I think people are saying we want our country back. We've heard it so many times. We've heard it in the way of code language. We want our country back, which means that we're going to step on some heads again. Every time we seem to get ahead, our heads get stepped on. So we don't get ahead. There's this attitude in America that people are losing their country and it's code language to say that other people are making more progress than we are. The country's turning brown, the country's turning yellow. And there's this fear in the air that's being stoked by, you know, who to cause racism to rise at to the top. And I think a lot of people out there who wouldn't even have this attitude, who could be accepting of it, they're deciding uh, out of fear that I don't want to lose my position, which always has been at the top. I don't want to be the minority. And I'll do anything, including, you know, have an insurrection, uh, threaten uh, people who run elections, you name it. We'll do anything to preserve that, including kill.
1: Do you think the Trump presidency not own do you think it did it reveal the amount of racism we have in this country and the amount of racism, denialism we have in this country? Or do you think that it just reinforced racism?
3: I think people found a place where they could be comfortable uh, voicing their concerns about, you know, other groups moving beyond them. I think they became comfortable saying it because much of what you hear people say is just a repeat of what Trump says. They're just mocking him and they're adding on to it when they say, you know, these uh, different cities run by Democrats. You hear that over and over again. So there's no original thoughts here. There's nothing new. They're just mocking Trump. So they found a comfortable place now to say whatever they want. And next comes, they're going to find a comfortable place to do whatever they want.
1: Yeah, and that's the frightening part. You state that your book is not an attack on America. And I bet that every Fox News writer right now is saying it is. So you write this as an attack on lies and deception and on putting people's minds to sleep. So in your opinion, who or what is putting our minds to sleep? Or are our minds put to sleep by the by, beliefs that have been forced upon us. What is causing, who is putting our minds to sleep?
3: Well, the inability to think, Chuck, is, 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 is a driving force. I mean, think about it. You don't need a brain anymore. You don't need logic anymore. You simply Google it. You don't need to find directions. You don't need to have any challenges in your life. You simply go someplace and find the answer. It doesn't come from you. That answer isn't always correct, but you accept it because... That's your new brain, that plastic thing and glass thing or titanium thing in your hand. That's your new brain. Now, when that happens, what happens to your real brain? It starts to rust a little bit and logic and truth and thinking are foreign to you because it's all right here. So everybody now is a genius because they can Google it, but they're not really genius. They're dumb as ever because they're not thinking with logic anymore. And this is what we see in this mass uh, exodus towards uh, reason, away from reason, towards madness, this, uh, this new conservatism. Take America back. That's all coming from a source that isn't from people's brains. It's from what they're holding in their hand, that screen they're watching every day. That's, that's part of it. And when you find that and you mix it with racism, it, it, it's big trouble.
1: You write that the record will show that the intentional use of drugs to control a population is a form of modern slavery. How do you see drugs as population control in major cities? Because to far too many, far, far too many, the effects are either invisible or not seen as effects of a purposeful drug crisis. So how do you see drugs as population control?
3: Well, in Detroit, you know, there's thousands of bodies buried under that city that represent what the so-called drug war was about. It was a war on people. So drugs have a long-lasting effect. It's generational. You've got crack babies who are now adults now, and they're having kids. It's in the system of of black people in Detroit, um, the, the, the black men who are not able to work and— The thousands of people and and, and all my friends, by the way, that I grew up with died off drugs, including my brother. It was that sweeping. So it's systemic. It's just something that is a great tool if you want to destroy a population or slow it down or even eliminate it completely. Drugs is a great way to do it. It's silent. And then people, you know, they die off and things are forgotten and it just goes on and on. So who knows what the next attack will be? We don't know. Uh, But we will have a signal when we start making big progress in a certain area, you're going to see it shut down. And it may be just after this next election. Maybe that new plan will roll out uh, to stop us once again and make us start over
1: you say consider the economic cost of the opioid crisis. As you know, this crisis was not one black people participated in and the impacts were limited to black Americans. However, look at what kind of payouts occurs when we are uninvolved. The three greedy corporate drug dealers collectively will pay up to $21 billion over 18 years. Johnson & Johnson will pay up to $5 billion over nine years. How they got a COVID vaccine contract to the government, I have no idea. With up to $3.7 billion spent during the first three years, if those in power used basic logic and common sense, they could easily see my point. But, Christopher, the opioid crisis was created by a legal drug, and the maker of the drug was well known, as were those who profited from it. How difficult would it be? to hold those financially accountable who are responsible for the illegal drug crisis that gripped Detroit or any other major city where there was an uprising against racialized violence by police.
3: So it is right there, well documented, the CIA and the Detroit Police Department and the FBI all working in unison. So granted... Yes, the opioid crisis was fueled by legal companies uh, who were pristine drug makers. However, it was known who bought the drugs into Detroit, how they got there. It's all known. It's well documented. The uh, people who were contracted to fly the drugs in have confessed everything. And the government has denied everything. The two can't be the same. The two can't go together. They're flying drugs into into, uh, bases, uh, Air Force bases. Owned by the US government Uh, they're giving a a free ride to drug dealers nothing goes through customs everybody's looking the other way and protecting them that's well-documented but unknown to the public right now I am uh, working to get this information in front of the reparations committee of the city of Detroit for consideration and by no means am I saying that african-american reparations are justified you know from a historical, uh, historical con- context, you know, redlining, on and on and on. But this is a very strong case for reparations. This is modern black history and what happened to black people in Detroit. It's too well documented to be ignored.
1: But is this just a matter of a few rotten apples within law enforcement, within city government, within intelligence agencies, within federal uh, law enforcement agencies. Is this just a matter of a few rotten apples? Because I know from personal experience that Let's see, how can I word this without getting in any trouble? Um, Military bases are often places Mm -hmm. where drugs are. From overseas are used to transport them back into or transport, transport them into the United States. I know from personal knowledge that that is the case. So, what do what you think it will take for people to accept the idea that, you know, that, or I guess my bigger question is is this a problem with rotten apples, with individuals within these agencies, or do you see it as a bigger structural problem?
3: I see it much bigger structurally. I mean, when you have sergeants and lieutenants of the Detroit Police Department participating, recruiting other officers to sell drugs on the streets of Detroit, that that tends to be organization. That tends to be more like IBM than a mom and pop. So you've got various examples, and we put a bunch of links uh, in, in the end of the book to people could go and do more research but you're talking about a lot of corrupt officers. I mean, this not only happened in Detroit, by the way. It happened in New York City as well, where of a police department of 10,000 people, half of the department, was doing things that were illegal in the way of selling drugs, protecting drug dealers. Detroit is, is just another example. So these things are, are not a few bad apples. Uh, half the police department can't be bad apples. It's an organized effort to put drugs on the street and control a portion of the population.
1: You mentioned slavery earlier And you write that To blame the former generations For the current problems Of blacks in America Is pervasive I get their response A lot from young people It is not offensive Because it comes from those Who mostly don't understand Courage, determination, and risk Each problem young blacks have today Is perceived to have been created By someone else Some past generation That failed to act This of course Is an easy path to take And requires no taking Of responsibility It also can become a way to justify doing nothing what happens when we understand black history mostly as a history of slavery and its lingering legacy
3: it it actually changes our approach I mean let's just take one simple example that I mentioned before the founding fathers in school we are taught to respect them to the highest degree founding fathers, the constitution, declaration of independence, on and on and on. However, if you just visit uh, one of the homes of of Washington, uh, just outside of DC, you just visit that home and they'll take you on a tour. One thing they won't show you are the slave quarters. However, if you wander off the tour, you'll find the slave quarters. They're there, they're in place. There are placards describing everything in the slave quarters but they don't show it to you unless you show it to yourself. Well, that's our founding father, the most respected president, the first president, the city's named after him. You need to think about that as a human being, that that person held people as property, as pigs and horses, chickens. That's what he considered them. He's the guy that founded this nation that thought alone should get people to think twice and dig deeper into the real history of this country because the history they know is not the true history of this country.
1: And people should check out our interview with Margaret Kimberly. She wrote a book about how every president that we have ever had is racist, including Barack Obama. And it is a must read, or you can go back and search on Margaret Kimberly's name at thisishell.com and listen to our conversation on her book. You describe how the city council chambers, uh, overflowed with bodies in response to the 1967 uprising while it was still pl- taking place. The space packed to its limits. Standing is the only was the only option and the room swelled with a diverse array of individuals. The presence a testament to the gravity of the moment. Black and white citizens stand on opposite sides of the room. The moods tense with glares exchange across the hallway, the black side of the room has garnered more of a police presence than the white side of course you then mention a 20 year old 21 year old attorney at the time Ken Cockrell Ended up becoming a city councilman. Decade later, would become a city council member. Uh, He was a newly minted young black lawyer at the time. He addresses the crowd, saying, "Mayor, let me be the first to speak today. We are clearly in a state of emergency. Let me be very clear: the reason this city is burning is the result of the constant attacks by police on black citizens. Yes, I said attacks. People are sick and tired of this kind of treatment. The stress division of the police department is nothing but killers. The Big Four is nothing more than a taxpayer-funded terror organization." whose sole purpose is to, with the sole purpose to uh, demoralize and demobilize the black community. So stress stood for the police program known as Stop the Robberies, Enjoy Stress safe streets, the mission of which was to racially target young black men to drive down crime, whether they committed crimes or not. The Big Four was a squadron of Detroit police officers, which, according to Detroit's Wayne State University, began patrols specifically aimed at maintaining racial homogeneity in the city's white neighborhoods in the 1960s. And Albert Cobo, Detroit's mayor from 50 to 57, openly campaigned in 1949 on a promise to prevent The Negro invasion, so not only was there an open program for racial profiling of young men, there was a winning political campaign running on supporting racial police profiling of young black men. What evidence is there to suggest that Cockrell's claims were accurate, were correct, that the city of Detroit, and not only the city of Detroit, had hired police to terrorize young black men, and how much did that racialized police terrorism? eventually contribute to Detroit's decline in the late 60s, as well as the uprisings against racialized police violence.
3: So, Chuck, in, as as a, as a youth back in those days, we were chased out of parks by the police department, and we were hit with nightsticks in, in the ankles and, and feet uh, so as to not to show much damage. They would throw their nightsticks at us three or four police cars would surround a park, and they would just raid it. Now, granted, there was a no-ball-playing sign in the park, no question about that, but we found it to be a convenient baseball field near our homes, and we would play there, but they would come down on us as if we were drug dealers. They'd come down hard on us, and we were just kids playing baseball. So when, when the mayor said, shoot to kill, after that meeting with Cockrell, A lot of things started happening around the city. And one incident, and we don't mention this in our book, but it's well documented, that a young man holding his daughter was uh, in his window, and he lit a cigarette. And the National Guard opened fire on him and killed his daughter uh, as he was holding her. It became uh, intensified after the mayor dropped the gavel and said, shoot to kill. And a lot of people went down for no reason at all. Uh, but this just wasn't uh, the. This, this, this is the beginning of it, but it wasn't the end. As I mentioned before, you know the Detroit Police Department killed 94 people between 71 and 73. So this just didn't end with the riot. It continued. Uh, in four years, there was 136 civilians killed by the Detroit Police Department. 21 percent of those homicides were teenagers, by the way. Yeah, unarmed.
1: Was- were unarmed. That was the big part of the uprising was because so many were young people who were unarmed, who were being killed. You explain about whatever resurrection or renaissance Detroit may be experiencing today inside the Detroit Entertainment District. Things look greatly improved from just 10 years ago. However, a healthy city is more than just an area where people come to drink beer, eat pizza and enjoy sports, then drive home intoxicated to the suburbs. Healthy cities consist of homes families, and backyards. Detroit is no longer a city. It's a cluster of investment districts. If you carefully read some of the development documents, the results have nothing to do with building an actual city for its citizens. Christopher, what happens yeah. to a city when it becomes a collection of investment districts rather than neighborhoods?
3: Well, it, it, it dies. And, and let me make a point of that, Chuck, because I was recently, I uh, had a speaking engagement in Windsor, Ontario, and I asked about 40 people. I said, how many people have gone to downtown Detroit. Practically, everyone raised their hand. They had went for different events during the winter, during the summer. Then I asked the second question, how many of you have visited the neighborhoods beyond the Midtown area, such as the areas of Highland Park, East Side, West Side? Nobody raised their hand. So beyond the entertainment district, it's devastated. It's totally devastated. And some of these homes you see, you say nobody could possibly be living there, but they are. There's a light on. And these homes should be condemned. Um, This is the other Detroit that they don't talk about. Granted, there is a comeback downtown, obviously. All the sports teams have moved back in. There's good development going on downtown. But that is not a city. That's downtown Midtown. Uh, A city will never be strong unless you develop its neighborhoods where people can live in affordable housing and where they can develop neighborhoods and neighbors and friends. That's what a real city is made of, and that's what Detroit has lost.
1: So what happens to uh, cities when they improve, but that improvement is limited to entertainment districts and does not trickle down to the people who are living in the neighborhoods? What happens if cities find success, bottom line success for investors, by investing in entertainment districts, but not in neighborhoods? What happens when they figure out what's best for our bottom line is helping out the entertainment districts and not the citizens of Detroit?
3: Well, we have a lot of history of that. What, what happens when that happens is that the black population gets pushed out and pushed into poverty, and you can see that clearly in Detroit. They're living in the worst housing probably in the U.S. Uh, you look downtown, they're probably living in some of the best housing. So here we see the haves and have-nots. It's intensified when this kind of capitalism steps in and says, we don't need a sit anymore. We need profits. We need to satisfy stockholders. Mutual fund holders, and that's what's happening to Detroit right now. And give it ten years, and you'll really see the devastation uh, that's going to happen to that city.
1: You're right that it's. You're right that it's been nearly 55 years since the Detroit. riot and drug attack and some wounds never seem to heal. Let's face it, the drug war was won by the government. Black people all over America lost that war and communities were crushed as a result. The proof can be seen in very large cities in America. The defeat is undeniable. You don't need a survey or research study to see this reality. All you need to do is look at the condition of black communities 50 years ago and look at them today. So do you think the war on drugs? was a continuation of what you call the master plan of destabilizing and disempowering black communities in order to stop the community from organizing against white supremacy. Do you believe the war on drugs wasn't a war against drugs in black communities, but was a war for white supremacy?
3: Yes, and it it absolutely has worked. And it was a war against free speech. Uh, you can look at COINTELPRO and you can find out that that was the war against free speech coupled with the so-called war on drugs which is a war on people those two connected and created total devastation in many cities around the country and I mentioned Detroit mostly because it was an epicenter it was a city of tremendous progress and anyone who's lived there any period of time they know what that city used to be in fact you can still ride around the city and see the number of abandoned buildings and small factories and realize this was once a great and robust city, uh, full of activity and wealthy city as well, where people could buy homes and they could raise a family. It's no longer that. So, yes, I I'd absolutely agree that those two interconnected, those two elements interconnected to destroy the city.
1: Some argue that a major contributor to Detroit's demise was the slashing of the social safety net as well as major tax breaks for the wealthy and their corporations and a re-regulation of the market that weakened things like environmental protections from the deadly uh, public health threats of industrial pollution. Did economic and social policy Policies have any more or less of an impact on the decline of Detroit than what you describe as a government CIA FBI law enforcement project to destroy black power? Was it policy or police that destroyed black communities in Detroit?
3: I think it was the police initially and policy followed. And the the, the policies, obviously, you know, you're always going to have some poor people in any community. But when you destroy a city, uh, if you're going to finish it off, you put in policies that help it go down even further, and that definitely happened in Detroit.
1: You argue that what killed Detroit is corruption and what continues the killing is still corruption. To you, what explains why there is, from your view, so much corruption in detroit what is it about either detroit or the united states in general that allows this level of corruption to take hold at the highest levels of power one of the things i always heard when i was growing up as a kid is unlike here in chicago we have aldermen who are you know for each Mm -hmm. specific ward in the city in chicago or in detroit all you have is city council members who are or at least when I was growing up, who were all at large and didn't, you couldn't just call your local alderman's office. I don't know if that's still the case anymore with city council members in Detroit, but what do you think is the root cause of the corruption that you see in Detroit?
3: So, so I, you know, I, I think the problem really is with many of these big cities, they're, they're controlled by developers and, you know, the whole corrupt system of campaign contributions and whatnot. The the city council in in Detroit is is not very interactive uh, with its citizens. In other words, there can be a vote on a project, and it's already done, and citizens can go forth, and they can complain. But the decision's already made. So too many of these cities, and Detroit included, they're run by developers, not by government.
1: Which is the worst part of what happens in any city, as I have learned before, when doing the real estate beat for a local TV news station. So what impact do you think the legalization of the recreational use of marijuana in Michigan has had on the way more deadly drugs are viewed and the drug problems still affecting black communities? is understood by those outside of black communities is the white population even more tolerant of the devastation done by dudley drugs and black communities as they grow more tolerant of far less harmful narcotic narcotics like marijuana
3: no america has a problem with the use of drugs uh legal illegal period we have a problem and we all know what happened uh, overseas recently where uh, a basketball player, a uh, female, had drugs and she was arrested and then released. You go into other countries of this world and you will find out very quickly that drugs carry the death penalty. And if it's prescription, you better be able to justify it and have documentation with you. Most countries in the world, Middle East, Southeast Asia, you do not bring drugs or use drugs in those countries. We have a problem in America with a tolerance for drugs. And once again, this goes to capitalism. Anything that makes money is legal. You know, there used to be a numbers game in Detroit, and now it's the Michigan lottery. Same thing, but different name, different mask on it. So we have a problem with corruption and things that make people's lives worse, and we accept those. I mean, anybody can drive around the city of Detroit and see just how many liquor licenses have been released to corner stores. It's just pervasive. Everywhere you look, liquor lottery. Liquor lottery. That's all you see around the city. And that should not be the case. When you're building a good city, you don't want that as part of its uh, you know, image. And that's the image I have of Detroit every time I visit there. It still surprises me how many liquor licenses have been provided to uh, liquor stores in neighborhoods around the city. It's shameful.
1: Wasn't the numbers game in Detroit called the Irish Lottery?
3: I never heard that term. I never heard that term. I just I, I always heard it was a numbers game and it was big. It was big. It was huge.
1: I think there was a secret in the white community that it was being uh, run by the Irish. So maybe that was it. So you write uh, oh, Okay. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, that's just weird. So you write by crushing the voices with fear, people have lost the will to fight back. They simply gave up. The 60s and 70s heroin attack was followed up by cheap crack and ever-visible black frontmen in the form of street-level drug dealers. Detroit-based groups like Young Boys Incorporated, the Chambers Brothers, and the Best Friends Gang, to name just a few, came into national prominence. These groups were used as the new face of the never-ending flow of drugs into Detroit. The no-snitch culture of the 90s ushered in an era of bloated cold case files, reinforcing a kill-without-consequences kind of law and disorder culture. Now, I knew someone in Young Boys Incorporated while they were in high school, and they would pick up packages of unknown contents from people waiting in cars parked outside the, across the street from their high school, and these white high school kids from just on the other side of 8 Mile would then deliver whatever the package was to addresses within Detroit where they would collect the rest of their delivery free, fee, or at least that's how they explained the whole Drop would work to me The no snitch culture Was in reaction To racist police And their often Too violent responses To calls In marginalized communities Do you believe The no snitch culture Makes sense to you As a response To racialized police violence And the increase In cold case files Outcome was Simply unintended consequences
3: Well you know I I saw a 60 minute special Years ago And they were interviewing uh, kids in Chicago about the no-snitch culture, and the reporter asked, uh, what if it was your mother? He said, I wouldn't snitch. So this snitch culture was built around gangs. This was a, a gang code not to snitch, and then it spread into the general population as far as not snitching. So it's been absolutely devastating. I mean, in fact, there are ways people can tell the truth about a crime, and they won't even do that without their identity being exposed. It's, it's fueled, it's accelerated crime in black communities, because everybody sees it, nobody says anything. And, you, and, and, and believe me, the police cannot do their job without the help of citizens. And if they don't have the help of citizens, they tend to do their job wrong. If you know something, you should say something. I believe in that. I worked 16 years with police technology, and my whole point was to make sure citizens are safe in a stop. Stop you they don't treat you as a criminal. They already know your background before they approach your car without their gun uh, Hand on their gun or threatening you as if you uh, committed first-degree murder So we created some technology that enabled citizens and officers to stay safe the cop goes home at night And you're treated with respect um, in a traffic stop
1: Christopher this is a fascinating book. Christopher Hood is, has been our guest today. He is the author of the award-winning script and film, Killing Detroit, The City That Refused to Die, that is now in book form. You can find out more about Killing Detroit on Facebook at facebook.com slash killing Detroit, or you can find out more by going to killingdetroit.com. So our final get, uh, question for each and every one of our guests, Christopher, I promise this, we do this with everybody, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate you. <laughs> your response so christopher are you ready yes i am all right so in your opinion are is it true that all cops are bad
3: good cops hate bad cops okay i hate bad cops all cops are not bad they have one of the most difficult jobs in the world because when they walk out of the house they don't know if they're coming back that's a tough job. That's not one that I would want. That job takes courage, it takes patience, it takes understanding. However, I think most cops are good, but I think the bad apples can poison the entire tree.
1: Christopher, spectacular answer to the question from hell. Thank you so much for being on our show. When your new book comes out, make sure that, make certain that you contact us. If your film's going to be shown here in Chicago, make sure that you contact us so we'll be Glad to promote it. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I truly appreciate it.
3: And thank you, Chuck, as well.
1: All right. Take care. Staring
3: into the abyss so
1: you don't have to, this is. is hell if you enjoyed our talk with Christopher Hood on the killing of Detroit, on Detroit not being the abyss that so many outsiders believe it is. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Uh, so, Rebecca. What is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience? And I don't know where you should be checking for listener responses. I'm not too sure. We're
2: looking in all the holes. All right. Um, So (laughs) we have uh, from our Facebook page, uh, welcome to the Hell Hole, Adam's suggestion. And our rollover question from Hell is, what flashy, flashy cable news name will you give our next forever war? And on the Welcome to the Hell Hole uh, Facebook group, we have Sherry B. uh, saying, Cops catching our politicians' schemes. Okay. And we have from Adam A. The Great American Mass Graveathon.
1: <laughs> That's or, really good. That but on the other really hand, uh, he wrote the question, so yeah, I think he's disqualified. He's
2: yeah. <laughs> and then we have, he also has a, ne- a second one, or adopt a bombing sponsored by your local military industrial <laughs> complex.
1: <laughs> That's really good. That's-
2: absolutely awesome and then we have an infograph or an info there's a it's Alexander well it's from Jeffrey Y and it's Alexander and the terrible horrible no good very bad war
1: okay alright then any more that's it alright so uh, also uh, if if this week on Patreon I am uh, home alone and it's weird for many reasons uniquely weird because of my disability which makes eating food left in the fridge a risky adventure and considering the deep freeze we are in here in Chicago and the wide variety of hallucinogens I may or may not have in my house it could have gotten a lot weirder last weekend But it didn't Being home alone for me is weird In ways that you may not be able to imagine But you will be able to If you listen to my rant on Patreon this week At patreon.com slash hell. Also on Patreon ProPublica's Eric Umansky was on the show this week To talk about uh, his writing On uh, police body cameras Not working, not because there's a problem With the technology or the camera in general But because there's a very corrupt problem With the police It was the first time Eric Had been on the show since 2008 And that's the archived interview Unavailable anywhere else online That we are sharing this week on Patreon Eric was on the show on March 29, 2008 A few months before joining a brand new organization Called ProPublica To talk about his then just posted article At the Columbia Journalism Review Titled Lost Over Iran How the press let the White House Craft the narrative about Tehran's nukes Here's what makes that conversation still relevant. The narrative around Iran's nuclear weapons program, the propaganda, the disinformation created by the Bush administration is still US foreign policy today, having survived the Bush, Obama, Trump, and so far the Biden presidencies proving that in whatever democracy we have today in the u.s we cannot vote lies about iran out of office but the only way you can hear that is by going to or subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell coming up jeff dorchin and the moment of truth we'll have the rest of this week's answers to the question from hell and we will announce a winner and we'll tell you what's happening on next week's show Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while it was really, really high. This is Hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line.
4: Who's afraid of a cluttered memory shack of one's own? I've been trying to arrange my thoughts and memories amid the tension between two ideas about critical understanding. One, David Graeber's notion of social creativity from his article, Fetishism as Social Creativity. Two, Eve Sedgwick's notion of critical understanding as a paranoid modality characterized by defensive reproduction of a negative affect in her essay Paranoid Reading and Reparative Reading. Graeber asserts a distinction between material production as trapped in a capitalist economic system whereby end products are determined in detail before they are created, and social creativity, which impels the advent of new social institutions without a blueprint of their achieved state of existence or even, one may infer, of their successful completion at all. He says that according to Marx, the planning of a utopian society is not a project of socialism or communism, but the quasi-philosophical goal of production-oriented bourgeois mentality. Graeber considers social creativity, by contrast, an inherently revolutionary endeavor sedgwick sees critical theory and praxis as synonymous with while also emerging from the application of a hermeneutics of suspicion the text is hiding its true intent and one must pick it apart to find the actual forces behind it there is a truer reading that reveals what the text doesn't want to admit but cannot keep itself from confessing and she finds the focus on suspicion Continually reposu- <clears throat> the focus on suspicion continually reproduces its negative affect, but then Sedgwick discusses reparative readings, positions, and practices, which sound a lot like motion toward the social creativity Graeber talks about, and suddenly the tension is broken, and I can get on with going through my memory palace, or rather memory hovel or shack, and get to work putting things in order. I hate work, though, so it is imperative that all my actions feel like either relaxation or play, with an occasional good deed thrown in. If an action feels like work, I respond by going limp, like a protester at a sit-in becoming dead weight, all the more difficult for cops to drag away, lethargy as an act of civil disobedience. My instinct when faced with work is to protest and i used to think i was unique in this or at least rare but i've noticed that many men i know who are paired in heterosexual relationships when they're asked to do something maybe a bit out of their comfort zones by their partners often respond by professing an inability to figure out often respond by professing an inability to figure out how to accomplish the task, thereby passively getting their partner to do it instead. Within myself, reflecting on this habit, I've identified it as learned helplessness, but I flatter myself that I didn't learn it to get a wife or a girlfriend to do things for me, rather to force society to flexibly flow around me like a river, but I'm kind of afraid that it amounts to the same thing. And then I start to feel bad for being lazy and entitled. But I quickly snap myself out of it by remembering that that's exactly how the Protestant work ethic and the evil spirit of capitalism want me to feel. So I go limp and relax until I realize it's only mental labor putting my memory garage in order. I can do this. I'm a mental guy. Everyone says so. Then again, I say to myself, brains have weight. Maybe three pounds. That's some heavy lifting to do all in my head. I subsequently remind myself that no one is going to profit from my mental labor but me. No bosses, no shareholders, no carceral state coercing me to pay fees and fines. That's not exactly true, though, is it? I could end up in a very organized mental state, which is just the state that the state wants its workers to be in i basically be doing maintenance on myself myself being a potential drone for the system and i hate that but i also hate my memories lying around all in disarray cluttering up my memory hovel it's a conundrum what's a mother to do a lazy mother an antisocial mother a discontented mother a single mother a mother of dragons a mother of all wars a mothership a mother of our revolution a motherland a mother courage a mother tongue a mother of vinegar a mother of pearl a mother load then I realize it's time to watch the first episode of the new season of True Detective, starring Jodie Foster, the mother of all cinematic lesbians. This new character might be a defining role for her, because she really hasn't had any defining roles. Think about it. She always plays Jodie Foster in a particular situation. I haven't seen Nyad or Dryad or whatever, the swimmer, with all the passion and drive. But in this season of True Detective, Jodie Foster is a stringy, muscled old woman with some real gravitas, or maybe aggravitas. This character has a lot to be aggravated about, and everything succeeds in aggravating her. She's the only competent person in the show, as far as she knows, and I guess the rest of us sympathize. What is the point of the memory shed, anyway? I never use it. I haven't looked in there for ages. Maybe I should burn it down. When was the last time I looked in there? Oh, yeah, when I was looking for, I was looking through some old theater oobleck photos apropos of a friend's memorial service and moment of truth essays for when This Is Hell was replaying classic content while its host was undergoing medical treatment. Oobleck and This Is Hell are both examples of social creativity, very different from each other and not new social institutions per se, but emergent from revolutionary desires and visions. And David Graeber liked them. He was a fan of both. All right. I'm not going to interrogate the impulse. I'm just going to designate a social creativity section of the memory oval shack or shed and put both OOBLEC and this is hell in that section so that they shouldn't be a total loss. Not that it would have. Not that it would be. But if it would have, it won't. This has been the moment of truth. (laughs) Good day. It sounds like
1: an angel is getting its wings.
4: What a... So you, unbelievable oh, this is the worst so you need day ever you need to address that angel
1: i'll talk no, to no i
4: can't actually it's too far away from me my <laughs> headphones will fly off my head
1: <laughs> why do we well, not I have could. you on video that would be so much
4: better you know what i thought about that <laughs> you have no it would really be hilarious um oh my god um uh, that was that guest was magnificent. <laughs> I know, it was... Christopher, what a There's guy. there's
1: some uh, some of the stuff that people disagree with. His... Oh yeah,
4: and I didn't like his answer to the question, from Mel.
1: No, but you know,
4: that's whatever.
1: just me. <laughs> exactly, that's up to the audience. <laughs> Jaffy. yes, dear. Until next time.
4: Oh, you know, I'm coming out there.
1: Yes, in March. We'll be talking to you soon, and you'll be sitting here live in studio with me doing a Moment of Truth as well as hanging out during office hours in March. So already put your entire March schedule aside in anticipation of Jeff Dorchin coming to Chicago. All right, Jeffy. Yes, dear. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Pottawatomie, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, Please kill Jeff and Sack and Fox People. <laughs> this is hell. Becca, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? Sorry about that. That's okay, it always happens. <laughs> Jeff always lingers on there.
2: All right. Uh, this week's question from hell, uh, from Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook page is, what flashy cable news name will you give our next forever
1: war? So thanks to Adam A. And we have already read all of the responses. It's been a rollover from last week. It kind of makes sense that we've already gone through all of them. So my favorite answers were, Let's see on Patreon I did like Nasrafej saying thanks for tuning into this morning's Genocide for Justice, where we tell you in our less than one minute segment why it's okay for us to sponsor the mass murder of different civilian populations all across the globe. Eh, It's a little bit wordy, a little bit lengthy. I also like Nick E saying, Battle of the Net War Stars, Uh, Public Universal Comrade, the War on Violence. Chris B saying, Operation Enduring Fiefdom, Essentials, Yuletide Protection Act, which I really liked. Uh, The Great War to End Humanity, P.S. You Will Not Be Home by Christmas, according to Old Grouch. Adi saying the war on war, which is a great answer. Uh, no Whack Wolf saying the pissful solution, the war against hell, according to Fabio. Kim G saying Operation Top Ratings Apocalypse. Mossifer saying, or Musafer saying, the uh, war on war, we're going to stop it once and for all this time. Uh, and then Cam saying, uh, spelling out OTRA, Spanish for again or another one. I don't know why. Operation Get the Last Bit of Peanut Butter in the Bottom of the Jar Without Getting Any on Your Hand, according to Hugh, which is fantastic. And Korg saying Guns and Butter is a virtual reality. Any of those really stick out to you, Becca or Chris?
2: I'm I'm a fan of war on war. It's
1: I do like so war cool. on war, and there were two. There was one from Adi, and there's one from Musafer, and seeing as how. Adi has won the Question from Hell before. Mucifer on Discord, you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell for answering this week's question. Uh, what's the new snappy cable news name that you're going to have for the next Forever War? Mucifer says, the war on war. We're going to stop it once and for all this time. Ah, remember when we did that over 100 years ago with the Great War? So thank you uh, for, answer. thanks to everybody who sent in their answers to this week's Questions from question from hell my answer to this week's question from hell is with the forever war already being used how about the never ending war which almost sounds magical or a theme park for sadists becca who have we confirmed for next week's shows i know nobody they've actually contacted me just recently in the last few minutes We will be sharing with you who our guests will be online Welcome to the Hell Hole, our Patreon page, our Facebook page, Twitter, Discord So check out all those places We hope to see you throughout January for This Is Hell Office Hours Our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, no matter the weather Office Hours are held every Wednesday evening at 6pm at Carrie's Lounge C-A-R-Y-S Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge Neighborhood And the cold warning, the severe cold warning that we have here in Chicago is supposed to be ending sometime this morning. So even though the temperature will probably be a very cool 15 degrees outside, that's the warmest it's been by 15 degrees in four days. So I hope to see as many of you as are willing to brave the cold this evening to hang out with me actually outside in a beer garden around a fire pit. Join me for uh, office hours this evening. Thanks to Rebecca Reidenauer as well as Chris Coolfan for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This
4: is Hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh. And my demon tries to knock me down.